I recently did an online conference for the ministry, Women's Bible Study, and Lisa LeJour had asked me to come on and talk about three topics, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Catholicism. So this is one of those videos. If you'd like to see all three, you could just wait you know, on my channel. It'll eventually be updated, and I will have more details about her ministry and links to that ministry if you'd like to check it out in the video description. So thank you to Lisa for letting me upload this content on my channel as well. I hope that you find this very beneficial. Thank you for joining us, you guys. All right, let's just go ahead and start. So welcome to uh, everyone for our Contending for the Faith webinar, which is kind of funny because it was never meant to be a webinar. Uh, originally, Mike was going to come to Phoenix with his lovely wife, and we were going to do a one-day six-part series and cover all three different religions. And then the coronavirus hit, which kind of kind of sort of ruined our life, I think. But um, so we had to cancel it because we can't meet there. And so we're doing the next best thing, which is the webinar. So we're very happy that Mike could join us. Now, if you are joining us for the first time and you don't know anything about us, I'm going to um, tell you a little bit first. If you're from Mike's end, my name is Lisa Leisure. I teach a women's Bible study in Phoenix, Arizona. And we videotape weekly studies and then put them online. Uh, here's our website right here, womensbiblestudy.com. And I'm really mostly showing that to you because uh, we are, this is, today is two hours of a six hour thing. And so you're going to need to sign up for additional webinars and that's where you would do it. So if you went to womensbiblestudy.com, you clicked on Mike's, um, actually you can put that back up to where the back screen here, uh, you'll see our contending for the faith right back up here on our website, click on that. And then you can, uh, you can uh, register for the next two. Uh, the one on Friday will be on Mormonism uh, and then we'll do Catholicism back in, uh, in June 20 ish, something or other like that. So, so we are very, very thrilled to have pastor Mike Winger with us today. So often we have guest speakers come to Bible study and this just seemed like a really important topic that we needed to talk about. So I'm going to introduce those of you that don't know Mike. So I'm going to introduce you to him. That's him on the screen. So um, Mike is a pastor, one of the pastors at Hosanna Christian fellowship in Bellflower, California. And I, his, his main focus is not so much the church, but his main focus is pretty much uh, his own personal ministry, which here is his um, uh, logo. There you go. Bible Thinker is BibleThinker.org. So Mike, I'm just going to have you tell us a little bit about what you do in your ministry so people know, know you. Yeah, well, the uh, the focus of my ministry is helping people learn how to think biblically about everything, and I I think that those are the those two words, think and biblically, are really the focus. That's why Bible Thinker, you know, is the is the name of the website and of the of the ministry. The idea is we want to think thoroughly about things, carefully about things, logically, rationally, and it's going to be biblical. Uh, I don't. There is a tendency, and sometimes when we deal with apologetics, even theology stuff, where we just start straying from what actually Scripture says about things and not letting it have its weight upon us, which it should. So, yeah, thinking biblically about everything, I, I take issues or passages or whole books of the Bible, any of those things, and I just want to cover them very thoroughly, study it a lot, and then break it down in a way that's accessible, but without dumbing it down. And that's, that's kind of what I do. So I have verse-by-verse -verse teaching through books of the Bible. I have controversial issues that I'll, that I'll try to cover very carefully and thoughtfully dealing with uh, other religions or in-house debates that Christians have, all that kind of thing. And all my content is free. It's all up. It's all totally free. It's available on, on YouTube or on my website. 
um, or on podcast uh, free of charge. Yeah, it's awesome. And I look at you as someone who's really changing the face of YouTube because, you know, everyone always said YouTube is for like the, the, the three minute segments. And I just think it's so cute because you teach for sometimes well over an hour and you do live Q and A's and, 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 and you have, I think I, the last I checked, you were at over 128,000 subscribers. So it just, and I'm just like, that just tells me that people really, really want good, strong Bible teaching. Like, what does that really, what does the Bible really have to say? So I, I always say you do live Q and A's and they give me anxiety because people will call in and I'm like, I don't know how I would answer that. So, <laughs> so I'm very proud of you. So BibleThinker.org for those of you. Uh, Mike has a beautiful wife and he told me 2.5 cats. <laughs> so you'll have to give us the cat thing. All right. Well, we have, we have, we have two cats that we are living in the house and that we take care of and stuff. Um, and then we have one cat that's a stray. Just was around the neighborhood, very friendly, very affectionate cat, but was an, out, an outside cat. We started feeding this cat, and then we went through the season in California where it was just raining constantly. So we opened our garage and gave the cat somewhere to stay dry. <laughs> and eventually, I cut a little hole in the garage, so he had a little cat door to come in and out, and now he's like our half cat. Yeah, so he, he, when I go walk around the block, which I, I do on a regular basis, he'll often go walk with me around the block. See, that's so cute. See, cats terrify me, just FYI. I always told Rob I wanted a tiger, though, which I think they're kind of in the same family. That was before Tiger King was even like a thing. So. Oh, yeah. Um, but your, your cats are cute. They show up on your, your, your cat cam every so often. Sometimes, but. yeah. Okay, so I have something really funny to show you because I didn't tell you this, Mike, but when, when I first, first found you on YouTube, this, this is what I saw. Can you see that up there? Uh-huh, I do, yeah. Okay, okay so all your faces. <laughs> and it always makes me laugh. But I know the first time I saw that, I'm like, like, wow, I think I bet he's very angry. And I bet he yells <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and so what I did was I clicked on one day, and I realized that you were not loud and you were ang- not angry. This is yeah. what you reminded me of. Okay, watch this. There you go. <laughs> and I'm like, That's okay, great. he's mild mannered and he's kind and he's smart and all those kind of things. Yeah. And then you started teaching and then you turned into this. Here you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, that's quite a compliment. <laughs> there you go. So I, I was laughing at yeah, that. For those people funny. that like had no idea like that that was Clark Kent and Superman, that's what it was. But anyway. Yes. Uh, well, you, you know what? I'll tell you though. The faces is literally just what seems to work on YouTube. It's like, how do I, how do I package the material so it'll get to people, so it'll minister to them? And the advice on YouTube is don't just have a normal face, have like a weird face. And so I've tried all kinds of weird stuff, even though I find it embarrassing. In the, no. in the attempt to like be all things, all people, so to speak. Yeah, no, I know. Cheyenne does all of our, our thumbnails and I'm always like, look, just make me look skinny. That's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, how we're going to do this, it's going to be uh, two or three two-hour webinars. Uh, the first one, of course, today will be Jehovah Witnesses. Friday will be on the Mormon Church. So if you, uh, you need to go on and register for that if you want to also watch that too. Once you're done with today, you'll, you'll love Mike that you'll just have to, to go and do that. And then the third one is, the, is, of course, the Catholic religion. Now, the Catholic will be a little bit different because uh, unlike the Mormon Church and the Jehovah Witness Church, the Catholic Church does believe in the right Jesus. So we're going to go a different way and talk a little bit more about just the religion itself and, and what the differences are in the Bible. So now the reason why we're doing this conference is because 
all of us have Jehovah Witnesses knock on our door. We have Mormons knock on our door. And the thing is, is that they all say they believe in the Bible. And if we don't really know the differences in what the Bible actually says, then people just assume, well, of course Mormons are Christians, and of course Jehovah Witnesses are Christians, and that is the reason for this conference. So I, I put, want to put a couple verses up really quick. Um, 1 Peter 3.15, on, um, it says, let's see, what does it say? But in your, where are we here? Oh, we're still on Superman. Uh, but in your hearts, uh, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. So that's kind of why we're doing this conference, because we want to make sure that we can have an answer for people. And then Jude 3 is kind of pretty much what our whole conference is about. This was the brother of Jesus. He thought it was important. Uh, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to what? Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's talk about, let's just start there, Mike, and just mm-hmm. talk about those verses and why this is, this is even important that we're even doing this. Yeah, well, like that verse in Jude, uh, Jude verse three is, you know, contend for the faith. There is, there is a faith in that phrase. The faith is talking about the things that we actually believe. It's not just a feeling of faith, but actually the doctrines we believe. And we're to, we're to contend or to fight for it. Now, not like a physical fight, right? But we're to, we're to basically choose the faith and then defend those truths without compromise. It was delivered once and for all to the saints. It's not going to be changed or altered. And, and our job is to preserve and defend those truths. So this is, this is hugely important. Uh, there, there's just no sense in saying I'm Christian, but I won't take a stand on Christian truth. This is to be like of two minds. It's to confess one thing with my mouth, but to live something else with my actual life. So yeah, the, the, the truth is that Jesus, he's, you know, he's the way. If, if Jesus is true, if he's the truth, which every person who claims the name of Christ says he's the truth, well, he's also the way. He says in John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right. So if there's no one who comes to the Father except through Christ, then we really want to make sure people understand who Jesus is and how they can access God through him. It's, it's of supreme importance. There's not really anything more important than that. Acts 4.12, it says that there is salvation in no one else. There's, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that would be the name of Jesus. We'll talk more about that verse a little bit later, but that's, that's Jesus it's talking about. Peter says to Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. So we're, we're just saying that, that we need to allow the truth and the life to be presented as he is the truth and the life and the way. There is a confusion about this, though. Some people think that we don't like um, other religions because we're being rude or intolerant or unkind. And that's, that's not true at all. Rather, we're, we're saying they don't work. That's the problem is that they don't work. If every path led to God, we would just all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and be like, awesome. But if, if this is a false path that doesn't lead through Christ and that doesn't lead to the Father, that ends up in hell, then out of love out of compassion, both for God and for our fellow man, we want to say, hey, look, that's, that's a, a one-way dead-end road. You don't want to go down that road. Come down the way, the truth, and the life, you know, the, the true faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So we defend that truth, and we do it out of compassion and love, not out of um, anger or rudeness or intolerance. Perfect. Yeah. Because I know we wanted to make sure and get that out there because we don't want people to think we're bashing their religion. That's not it. We're trying to save their life. It's kind of how we think about this. Um, okay. So really for, we, we of course have the Bible, which of course we know that it tells us the way to God, but 
my question, and this is kind of sounds really weird, but so we've had this body of truth for what, 1800 to 2000 years that, you know, that, and I don't understand how somebody 1800 years after around Jesus and around the time when they were, you know, writing these things for the, for the, for the Bible, why would somebody just believe something like the Jehovah witness? Like, Oh, this is just a new religion. And like, it doesn't make sense to me. And we'll do that with Mormonism. Like, I don't understand how people can just, one day wake up and go, oh, there's something new, even though Jesus made it so clear to watch out for false teaching. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, but <clears throat> there's an interesting thing in the New Testament where we have warnings about false teachers, but we also have affirmation that large numbers of people will follow those false teachers. So even the, even the scripture affirms this, that like, yeah, there, there's false teachers, but yeah, a lot of people will follow them. I think one of the, the downsides uh, for a lot of people is that they just don't know the Bible in the first place. Right. Yet, Yet here's the crazy thing. They think they do know the Bible. Yeah. I, I have encountered people all the time with weird beliefs who say, I know the Bible. And I like to ask them questions like, um, what do you think the book of Hebrews is about? <laughs> they go, Hebrews, what, where is that? Old or New Testament? You know, because they don't know the Bible. They, the thing is, they've had such a shallow faith for so long. They think that that's all there is to Christianity. And right. so they think they know the Bible, right? So they have beliefs, but they're not thoughtful or they're not well under, understood. And they don't understand scripture, but they do have verses, individual isolated verses, but those verses are often out of context. So that creates sort of a lot of a high level of confidence, but with a low level of understanding, that person is very easy to bring into a cult because then you come to them with challenges and you say, well, the Trinity is a, is a pagan belief that was invented years later. And you start asking him hard questions about the Trinity. Um, how, how could Jesus pray to God if, if you know, if, then he couldn't be God because he was praying. Um, well, God can't die and Jesus died. And you start asking these hard questions or they say, oh, the cross is a pagan symbol. This is something that Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The cross is a pagan symbol. Your Christmas celebration is pagan. Um, all of your churches are, 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 you know, ignoring the Bible. And, and you don't know that this isn't true because you don't know the Bible. Right. So it's actually true that most of those who convert to JWs become Jehovah's Witnesses. They're nominal Christians. They're Christians in name, but not necessarily in life. And the, the opposite is also true, that a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses who leave the organization, they're those not who are Jehovah's Witnesses only in name, but they're those who studied more deeply. And then they went, wait a minute, whoa, we're completely off the rails compared to what scripture actually says. So yeah, that it's our it's our shallowness that puts us in danger. And that's why the I think that's why it was your ministry and our ministry and a lot of new Bible ministries out there. It's like we just are desperate to get people to know what the Bible says, so we can stand yeah. up against you know things that come in our life that some of this untruth. So all right, talk to us about how how this religion even started. Like what what does that even look like? Yeah. So <clears throat> this is um this is interesting, and this is something where actually um, there's a there's a discussion or debate on this even amongst Jehovah's Witnesses because their founder is a guy named Charles Taze Russell. But Charles Taze Russell is a very controversial figure, and some of their modern beliefs actually disagree with him. And so they will often try to say, like, we don't really, he's not really the founder, he's just one of the first guys. So they try to kind of distance themselves from him. But if you read the literature, you see that he was the guy, like he's the guy in the past. Um, in the 1870s, Charles Taze Russell started this movement, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He didn't call it that at first. Um, but originally, Charles Taze Russell, he was an Adventist. And from them, he got his belief in, in that there is no hell, uh, that annihilation is the doctrine, there is no hell. And he also got a peculiar 
you know, tendency to do end times predictions. So the Adventists were teaching that Christ had returned in 1874 invisibly. And this is something they, they taught. And later on, Russell ends up taking those teachings, adapting them and going further. Russell teaches that the end of the world was going to happen in 1914, that this is going to be the end of the world and the ushering in of now the kingdom of God. Um, he also, now they changed that later on, they altered that belief. Now they say 1914 is the invisible presence of Jesus. But again, those are the alterations over the years. He denied the Trinity. He said that uh, all the historic creeds were false. They were false teachings, like the Apostles' Creed, things that Christendom has believed forever. He says those are all false teachings, and that Christianity, outside of his little bubble of people who followed his teachings, all of Christianity was a tool of the devil. So you, you, you start to go, okay, wow, he's, he's, he's getting really far out there. Um, he started study groups who called themselves Bible Students. Later, they called themselves International Bible Students Association. And he was so committed to his task of expounding his views of the Bible, his new interpretation of Christianity, that he started, he sold uh, several businesses, there's several locations of his father's clothing business that he inherited, and he got millions of dollars out of it and started publishing Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. Okay. So that sounds familiar because nowadays they're handing out the Watchtower magazine. Well, mm-hmm. the, that's what it came from. So he, fa- he uh, founded in 1881, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Now this is a publishing company is what it is. And the, this is what we have to understand is different than a lot of other religions. Jehovah's Witnesses are publishers and they focus on, on getting the printed material of the organization out into people's hands. That's the focus. So initially uh, Russell's, little Bible study groups, these small groups where he would, he would guide them through the Bible and he encouraged them to come together and study scripture. But after he wrote some volumes of his, of his, uh, of his own publications, his interpretations of the Bible, which he called studies in the scriptures, that's an important to remember. Remember that studies in the scriptures, it's in six volumes. After he started writing these, he told his Bible students to stop studying the Bible and to study his writings instead. Now, that's a big shift for them, right? Because now we're moving on to, okay, we have a special publishing thing, and it's kind of replacing the Bible. Uh, Nowadays, they continue to produce these types of writings um, in Watchtower and Awake magazines that they bring to your door uh, when Jehovah's Witnesses show up. In uh, 1910, let me read you some quotes now. In fact, I've given you these quotes so we can put them on screen. In 1910, in the Watchtower page 298, it says the following, and, and look at their attitude towards the Bible versus their attitude towards their writings. If the six volumes of scripture studies are practically the Bible topically arranged with Bible proof texts given, we might not improperly name the volumes, not merely comments on the Bible, but they are practically the Bible itself. Then it goes on on the same page to say, furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies aside, even after he's used them, after he's become familiar with them, after he's read them for 10 years, if he lays them aside and ignores them and goes on to the Bible alone, our experience shows that within two years, he, he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the scripture studies with references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light. At the end of the two years, he would have the light of the scriptures. So this, this quote is really, really damning in a sense, because they're saying, if you read the Bible, you won't get our teachings. That's what they're admitting. So they're, they're counseling people. You don't need to read the Bible as long as you at least read our teachings and just the verses we quote, right, out of context. Then in 1981, that was 1910, in 1981 more recently, Watchtower, August 15th, it says, um, 
that people are wrong if they, and here's the quote, if they say that it is sufficient to read the Bible exclusively, either alone or in small groups at home, through such Bible reading, they have reverted right back to the apostate doctrines that commentaries by Christendom's clergy were teaching a hundred years ago. Now, I think they've admitted more than they wanted to in that quote. What they're telling is not only you don't get our teachings from the Bible, but they're saying something else. If you do read the Bible alone, what teachings do you end up with? Classic Christianity. <laughs> That's what they're saying, right? Because you revert back to what these clergy were teaching a hundred years ago. So you're getting classic Christianity if you just read the Bible alone. So this is, um, <clears throat> this is really, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. This is, this is like the sign of one of the signs of, of, a, of an apparent group, right? Is we're going to replace ultimately in some fashion, replace the Bible with something extra biblical as the new standard for what you're going to believe. So the focus now is on publishing. That's what Russell started. He started false beliefs, false prophecies, and he started a, a new publishing system that's treated like scripture. And it replaces the Bible, at least effectively. They still have Bibles, don't get me wrong but it effectively replaces the Bible for our source of what we believe. When Russell died in 1916, there were more copies of his works than nearly any other work in the world. I mean, there was more of the Bible and more of like the Chinese almanac, but there wasn't much more of anything else than just his works because the whole focus of the Watchtower and of Jehovah's Witnesses is getting material out, getting material out, getting their teachings out. So it's, it's, um, it's new, it's novel. For 1800 years, the church didn't believe these things. And then he shows up and replaces the Bible with the watchtower effectively. But if I were to join the Jehovah Witness Church, like what, like, because I know we live in a world like, what's in it for me? <laughs> like, what's, <laughs> like, okay, you get to go door to door and tell people and like, what, and why would I want to, like, what is exciting about that? Well, I mean, for one thing, they create a sense of, of, of paranoia about all other ch churches and Christians because they're saying they're all basically apostates. So you feel like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm scared because like I celebrated Easter. So I must be apostate, which is, that's, that's, that's like internet stuff right there that you see all over the place. But um, other, other things they do is they really promote family values. They really talk about how um, they're, they're, they just talk about how they're good people and how they want to, you know, connect you into a nice community of people. So there's a lot of like, those are positive things, but they're positive things that are like the bait on the hook that is false teaching. That's madness. Okay, so let's talk about this word cult, because we would say Jehovah Witnesses are a cult. So what, what is, define what that, what that means. Like, what, what is a, a cult? Well, cult has multiple definitions, different ways of using the term cult. So in some scholarly circles, cult refers to like highly regulated religious practices. So they'll actually use the word cult. It's weird to normal people, but they'll use the word cult to talk about the, the sacrifices that took place in the temple in the Old Testament. They'll call it the temple cult, but they don't mean it the way we mean it, right? They're using the word in a whole different fashion. In Christian theology, uh, we've often used the term cult as I, as I often do uh, to refer to like major heresy, a, a group that sort of claims to be Christian, claims to be classic, typical religious group, but they're actually a divergent group. They're, they're, they're very different than the thing they claim to be. And so there's major heresy, uh, false teaching on God's very nature, definitely a false teaching on the gospel. And they often also have uh, an authority that they're raising up that is going to be over you and is going to be standing in place of, of the Bible. So we see heresy about who God is, how we're saved, and a new authority. These are like the three things that I often see when I, when I go, okay, I'm going to call that a cult, at least from my terminology. Uh, the, the Bible warns of this. The Bible talks about how there'll be false gospels, uh, false teachers, false apostles, and leaders. And to me, that's what, <clears throat> that's what the word cult means. Cult's like saying, 
hey guys, that group out there claiming to represent Christ is not represent Christ, representing Christ. It's, it's a false group. Uh, it's a cult. Yeah. And sometimes there's a mind control type element that goes on there as well. Well, that's what you said. It, it seems like, so they come upon, come on the scene and they're like, you know, we're kind of like the voice of God. And you, it's kind of like they're run by a group of men and then they, they have this leader. And it just seems like, like that's what a cult seems to be. I mean, mm-hmm. talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> um, for Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, we talked about sort of the historic, you know, beginnings and how it all got started. But at the moment, the way it is today, there is a group of eight men and they live in New York and these guys are called the governing body. Now, these guys are the highest authority on earth as far as the Jehovah's Witnesses is concerned. They do two major things. They, they well, I'll say three things because one's potential. So one is they formulate doctrine. So they tell people what they should believe. This is what you believe as a Jehovah's Witness. Two, they oversee publishing. Okay, again, it's all about publishing the content. So they're the ones putting together and overseeing the Watchtower magazine, Awake magazine, and then a bunch of other resources that they put out all the time. In fact, as a Christian, you've got the Bible on your shelf. Everything else is commentary, right? And it's not necessary, but the Bible is. But for the Jehovah's Witness, if, if, if I were to just put all the literature from Jehovah's Witnesses up over the years, I would need, I mean, I have six bookshelves in my house, right? There's two behind me. I got four more. I wouldn't fit it all. There's so much, there's stuff being published all the time. So they oversee that. And then they have another function, the governing body, which is this. <clears throat> the Jehovah's Witnesses are expecting the end of the world to begin at any moment. Okay. And they're taught that one day when, the, when, it, when it begins, when Armageddon begins, that they have to follow the instructions of these eight men and their life depends on it. So they're just like waiting for like marching orders, not necessarily to go and fight, but maybe, okay, everybody we're, we're all uh, running into the mountains to hide or, or we're all gathering and they're just looking for instructions of what to do when Armageddon happens. Now this sounds creepy to a lot of other people, but to a Jehovah's witness, it's exciting because they're looking forward to this. Okay. They're like, yeah, we're, we can't wait for them to give us those instructions and our life will depend on it. And they're, they're taught you have to obey them even if what they say sounds weird or irrational. This is stuff that they're taught. But let me, let me tell you a little bit about their authority claims, this particular group, the governing body. We have to understand they're not like, they don't serve like a pastor in a church or like, the, like elders in a congregation. So uh, we have a couple of quotes to put up on the screen here. And this is from Watchtower Magazine, uh, 2013. And this quote says the faithful slave. Now just, you know, the faithful slave is, is, is shorthand for the governing body or these eight guys in New York. So that that's who they're talking about. This is official doctrine in 2012. They define this very clearly. They said the faithful slave, the faithful and discreet slave is, is these eight guys. So the faithful slave is the channel through which Jesus is feeding his true followers in this time of the end. It is vital that we recognize the faithful slave our spiritual health and our relationship with God depend on this channel. So they're, they're, to put it in a, in, in a more obvious sense, they're saying that the governing body is the mediator between God and man instead of Jesus. Okay. Effectively, Jesus has been replaced by these eight guys. They're the channel through which your spiritual health and relationship with God depend. Another quote from um, uh, JW.org from November 2012 says, the faithful and discreet slave was appointed over Jesus's domestics in 1919. That's just talking about the kingdom of God, all, all true Christians in their mind, they're appointed over. That slave is the small composite group of anointed brothers serving at world headquarters during Christ's presence who are directly involved in preparing and dispensing spiritual food. When this group work together as the governing body, they act as the faithful and discreet slave. So 
you, they're essential to your salvation is what that's saying. Now, they, they provide access to eternal life, um, according to the Jehovah's Witness teaching, and your membership in their organization and your obedience to them is totally required. So I have another quote for you from Watchtower 1981, December 1st, page 27. Unless we're in touch with this channel of communication that God is using, we will not progress along the road to life, no matter how much Bible reading we do. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. They're saying that you can't just believe in Jesus. You can't just trust in Christ and be saved. You have to belong to the organization, which means yielding to these eight guys, or sometimes they have nine or eight or two or 17 or whatever, whoever is currently part of the group. Um, one, more, one more last quote for you, and it's in uh, Watchtower 1964, July 15th. I'm quoting for anybody who isn't familiar with this. I'm quoting from official sources from the Jehovah's Witnesses here. It says, what would happen if you don't follow these guys? Show respect for the faithful and discreet slave that he is using at the present time. Actually, your very life depends on following this course of action. Remember too, it is only he that endures to the end that will be saved. So your salvation depends on those guys and your connection with them. That's, if that's not a cult, yeah, nothing is. Yeah, that's kind of terrifying. This is a weird thought I just had, but a lot of Christian churches, do you think there's some Christian churches that are going down that road where it's like you join the church and you have to follow this particular leader? I mean, is that something we need to be worried about too while we're on the subject? Yeah, I think that any any of this, like I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, you know, that kind of stuff is is a dangerous thing. Um, I don't see it personally happening too much, but then my my experience in the small number of churches that I happen to, you know, visit or, or, or be acquainted with, that doesn't necessarily speak to the world. It is human tendency to start putting people in the place of God. And that is something we all have to watch out for. And it's, it is important to, uh, what I see more often probably in churches is just pastoral overreach, is pastors who just, um, they, they think too highly of their own authority and they, they overreach and they think too highly of their own discernment. They think they're the voice of God when they're, when that's not what pastor is. Pastor isn't, I'm the voice of God for my church. That's not what that means. And so there is a, there's a responsibility there that sometimes they forget. On the other side, the church is also sometimes the pastor is basically, uh, he's the pep talker for the church and he doesn't have any authority really, no spiritual kind of authority. So there's probably errors on both sides. Right. Um, all right. Talk about um, J.J. Ross and Charles Taze Russell. This, there was a, something in court that was kind of an issue and it should throw a red flag to people because he lied. And that should maybe make, if you're a Jehovah Witness, maybe that should make you stop and go, wow, I should probably think twice about this. Yeah. So, and this is, again, this is why they're, they've sort of distanced themselves from Russell a bit in the, in the more recent literature and the older literature, Russell's like the man, God spoke through him. He restored the gospel through Russell. And now in the newer, newer literature, they're trying to distance themselves a bit, um, but they can't because it just, the fact is he started this whole thing and they, and they still consider his six volumes studying the scriptures treated as practically the Bible, right? That's, that's what they do. Well, this is so fascinating. So there's this guy, J.J. Ross, and he wrote a tract, uh, a little pamphlet called Some Facts About Self-Styled Pastor Charles T. Russell, where he just ripped on Russell, just ripped on him. He says about him that he's deceiving people. He's not really a pastor. Um, he doesn't really know biblical languages. And, and he's defrauded people out of their inheritance. He's, he's talked widows into giving, making him the one who would inherit their fortune when they died. And that he also had fraudulent business practices, that he used a spiritual authority to like, 
uh, buy land that should have been say $50,000 for like 20 bucks. He was, he was, you know, defrauding people. Well, Russell did not like those things at all. And so he sued the guy. He sued J.J. Ross. Well, I think he expected it to go away. So J.J. Ross, uh, according to J.J. Ross, uh, he, he writes about the whole lawsuit and the thing that happened. What happened is that Russell um, went to sue him and J.J. Ross was like, fine, let's go to court. I'm going to prove all these things that I've said about you were true. And Russell didn't show up in court. And then Russell didn't show up again. And the court produced a summons like you need to come back to the, to the country because <laughs> he left the country and to come back and you just, you just sit in court and be cross-examined and he didn't want it. So he wrote a, a letter according to Ross saying, hey, um, you know what, if you'll just apologize to me and tell people you're wrong, I'll drop the whole thing. And Ross is like, nope, I want to take it to court. You want to sue me? Let's do this. Well, finally, Russell gets onto the stand. And it's like a long cross-examination. And I want to get my hands on the actual manuscripts. It's a, it's a real headache. I, I haven't been able to do it. But the following is from Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Colts. And he pr- provides us with um, some of the transcript information that he got from someone inside the Watchtower. Um, and you can check it out in his book for more details. But here's, here's a part of the, the back and forth. So the question was asked by the prosecutor or the defense attorney who says, do you know the Greek alphabet? And Russell says, oh, yes. And he says, can you tell me correct letters if you see them? And Russell says, well, some of them, I might make a mistake on some of them. Now, just, you know, the alphabet is like the most basic thing, right? I know the Greek alphabet easily, easily right? Now, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean you even know Greek to know the Greek alphabet. You were just part of a sorority, maybe. <laughs> so it doesn't really mean that much. This is not high level of Greek knowledge. Uh, but he's claiming to have inside Greek knowledge. And that's why he can, he can tell you that Jesus really isn't God, that kind of thing, right? So he says, would you tell me the names of those on the top of the page 447 I've got here? And then Russell says, well, I don't know that I'd be able to. Then the prosecutor says, uh, or the lawyer says, you mean you can't tell what letters those are? Look at them and see if you know. Some time goes by and the uh, lawyer says, are you familiar with the Greek language? And Russell says, no. So under oath, the man perjured himself. This is significant because, and it's not because he, it's not like we're just saying, oh, Russell has a character flaw, so you should reject him. That's really not what we're saying. We're saying that he claims a new interpretation of Christianity that disagrees with all of church history and seems to disagree with scripture. He tries to support this by saying, ah, but I know Greek, but I've got Hebrew. So I'm giving, you know, I'm, I'm pulling the wool out over from your eyes so you can see the truth. But under cross-examination, it's proven in court. The guy doesn't actually know Greek which means that you can't trust his wacky interpretations. Right. This, is, this, is, this is a real big deal. So he yeah. pretended inside knowledge, and they still do this today. Um, uh, the Watchtower is following in Russell's footsteps, unfortunately. And they pretend that they've got insight into Greek that they don't have. And they do stuff that makes guys that know Greek just bash their heads against the wall. And they tell their congregation, oh, but in the Greek, this and that and this and that. And it's very, very manipulative and dishonest. Wow. All right, let's talk about... Jesus. Let's <laughs> talk about what the Bible says about Jesus and what the Jehovah Witness Church teaches, because we are talking two completely different things. Yes. Okay. So, uh, you know, we know the Christian uh, teaching on Jesus, the biblical teaching on Jesus is that he is God and he is with us. He's God and man. He is truly God and he's truly man. Uh, both of those things are true about Jesus. But in Watchtower teaching, Jesus is actually not God. Um, he's a created being. He didn't always exist. He's a created being and he's actually Michael, the archangel. 
He's Michael the Archangel. And you, let me give you an example. Now, this is refuted in lots of places in Scripture, but what I'd like to do is share with you one verse they use to support this doctrine, and it's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And this verse says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, that the voice of an archangel, that, that phrase in the verse there, they're saying, well, if he comes with the voice of an archangel, then that means he's an archangel. And this is, this is the kind of thing that throws Christians off because they're like, well, I haven't thought that deeply about that verse. You know, I don't, I don't know what to think about it. But there's a few things I'll mention really quick for those who might be wondering about this. Um, it says he comes with three things, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet. Is Jesus a command? Well, no, he's coming with a cry of command. Is he a, is he a trumpet? Because he comes with the sound of a trumpet. Does that make him a trumpet? <laughs> well, no, that would be irrational. So he goes with the voice of an archangel. Why, why is that? make him an archangel. Well, it doesn't. The point is he's being heralded. There's a cry of command, right? Perhaps this is from the father, the, the voice of an archangel. Well, it, scripture says he's coming with all the angels. So we know he's, he's coming with every angel. So with all the good ones anyway. And so we would expect archangels voices to be involved in this. Right. And um, yeah, so that, that, that's a key proof text to them. And this is, this is to, to just destroy the deity of Jesus Christ on such shoddy, you know, handling of the text of scripture is, is really, that's what they do a lot, unfortunately. So they don't believe Jesus like we believe in Jesus. So yeah, they, it's a totally different Jesus, not even the same person at all. So because they, because they believe he was Michael, how, how does that play out? Like, uh, like God creates Michael and then. Yeah. So they, they think that God created Michael, the archangel first, okay. and then sort of through Michael made everything else. Okay. So this is because there's scripture that says all things were created through him. But of course, in their translation, they say all other things were created through him. And so they try to try to, they try to force a creation moment for Jesus that never actually happened. Yeah, this is, um, this is, <clears throat> okay. So if I take something that's not God and I call it God, that's, that's idolatry, right? But what if I take God and I say, he's not God, that's called blasphemy. And that's what's happening with Jesus here. Okay. So when, when he came um, and, uh, you know, in Bethlehem and uh, what is their view on, on, on that? Um, they think that Michael became a human. So he's okay. an archangel who became a human. And then <clears throat> we'll talk about the death of Jesus a little bit more, I think. But when he died, that, that man, that humanity died and he's never human again after that. He's now he's just Michael, the archangel. They'll still use the word Jesus to refer to him, but they think that physically that's it. That's the end of the story for him. One of the questions that somebody emailed me um, originally, so I'm going to go ahead and put this up and you can uh, talk about that. Um, the question I have is defending the divinity of Jesus Christ. I have a, a Jehovah Witness friend who I'm witnessing to. And when we discuss the divinity of Jesus, she quoted to me John chapter 20, verse 17. Um, with this verse, she challenged me by asking why Jesus would call his father, his God, if he were also God. To her, it would seem to be contradict that Jesus was God if he did not, if if he himself is ascending to God. I'm looking for the best way to respond to this question. Yes. Um, well, <clears throat> the uh, the thing that I think maybe the verse that helps us the most, <clears throat> excuse me, is when we look at John one one. Okay, in John one one, it says that the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this now this is a very careful like the structure in Greek is very careful. Um, we're getting deep theology in this verse of John one one. So the word is is God, but the word is also with God. So how can 
Jesus say that the father is God because he's with God. God is not only is he God, but he's also with God. There's a relational aspect within the Trinity. So the father can be called Jesus is God for two reasons. One is the very nature of God is he's triune. There's three persons. So he's always with himself, so to speak. That's sloppy terminology, but the, the, the father, the spirit and the son are with one another. But there's also the fact that Christ comes and he lays aside his glory and becomes a human. He's still deity, but he's also human. So he has now a human relationship with the father. And so in that humanity, he can speak of the, he can pray to the father. He can interact with the father as God, but the scripture is also very clear that he's still God because it was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So I, does that help? I, whoever, I, I, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> help me. <laughs> it has All to right. do with getting a clear understanding of Jesus, both Jesus's humanity and his deity. Okay. And as long as we don't lay aside either of those truths, all the verses make sense. But if you set aside any one of them, everything falls apart. Okay, perfect. That makes sense. All right, let's talk about Jesus dying on a stake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really weird. Like, what, what is that all about? Yeah, I could go on on this for a long time. Actually, I have a video <laughs> where I talk about this for quite a while. Um, so you might be like, who cares what, what shape the right. object is that Jesus died on? So Christians say it was like a cross like this. And then uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say it was a stake. It was just one upright pole. Uh, but the reason why I think that they do this is because it creates doubt about everything if you think that something you took for granted wasn't true. So if you think, boy, all this time I thought the cross was a cross, not a stake. And so they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, um, we can quote Greek resources. We can we can uh, show you from the Greek, especially this is all about Greek, really, that the word stauros that the New Testament has for cross is actually should be translated stake. And in their translation, that's how they translate it as a torture stake. Now, to us, it doesn't matter. Okay. As a Christian, I don't care. Like, I mean, oh, change your artwork. Okay. <laughs> that's about it. That, that's about the biggest impact it has. But the Watchtower, their repu- rep, uh, reputation is riding on this because they've used this as a major point of showing paganism amongst all other Christians by saying the cross is a pagan symbol. You've added the cross, you're pagans. And this is a big deal to them. And the truth is that in the Greek and in history and in even Watchtower literature, it's a cross, not a stake. So I have a whole video where I go through tons of information on this. I'll give you a couple points real quick. Okay. The, the Greek word stauros, it, it did originally mean the etymology, the origin of the word, it meant like an upright stake. But over time, words change. Okay, so at the time of Jesus, the most common use of the word was for a cross, not just a stake. Okay. Also, our earliest copies of the New Testament, they have where the word stauros occurs, they have this cool little artsy thing that manuscript guys would do. Instead of writing stauros, they would take the, the T and the R or the, the tau and the rho, the two Greek letters that are consonants that are in the middle of the word, and they would merge them together into an image and they would just get rid of the vowels. So we call this a starogram. And it's like a, it's like a shorthand way of saying like, um, instead, instead of saying, I love you, it's but I heart you, right? We, we know what that means. So instead of saying stauros, they would put this other symbol and the symbol is a cross when you put these two letters together. So from the very earliest Christians, they're, they're taking for granted that it's a cross. In the second century, Justin Martyr and the epistle of Barnabas both talk about how there were two beams where Jesus was. In the gospels, we have multiple gospels that say there was a sign over his head, which would imply that there were, uh, there were uh, two beams. And the... Um, the watchtower, here's the most interesting part. The watchtower used to think the cross was real, not, not, not the stake. So I've, I've given you guys a couple of pictures. So let, let's take a look at those. They're, the first one is um, 
from the 1912 watchtower. And if you look at the top left of the image, you see a crown and cross, the crown and cross symbol, which is something that was really common for Jehovah's Witnesses, even up into the 60s. They would wear these things as like necklaces and stuff. On the, on the lighthouse, you see multiple crosses. Okay, this is, this is the watchtower, 1912. They thought there was a cross then. But if you go to 1931, you can see that they were still teaching. Okay, here's a 1931 copy. They still got the cross and crown on there. Um, they've got the lighthouse, although it looks like the crosses have been removed from the lighthouse, which is interesting. Okay. But then if you go 15 days later to October 15th, 1931, the cross is gone. That's when the change happened. All of a sudden they went, wait, crosses are pagan. And from then on, they were teaching, hey, um, this, is, this is a pagan thing. We don't want this. We don't want anything to do with this. Up until then, they said it was fine. Um, this is a development of doctrine, and it's a really useful tool because on the level where people don't really know their theology very well, this just freaks them out, okay? It just freaks them out. The cross I'm wearing is a pagan symbol, you know, and, and it's, it's not true, but it's really useful for, for getting you to distrust your pastors, get distrust your Bible translation, and then think that the Jehovah's Witnesses are offering you the truth. And that's, that's the real strategy there. Uh, okay. All right, let's talk about uh, this invisible rule. Like, like mm -hmm. Jesus is invisibly ruling since, what, 1914, and why is that a big problem? Because it kind of is. Yeah. Um, okay, well, they teach that in 1914, uh, Jesus showed up, came back, and now he's ruling on earth. Not in a physical body, because they think he has no physical body. We'll get into that probably a little bit later more. But this, the reason why they picked that date, 1914, is they have this really complicated calculation based upon different scripture verses and the idea that Jer uh, Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 607 BC, and then they count the years and they go, boom, 1914, that's when Jesus returns. This is actually really, really fascinating to study because there is no way on earth Jerusalem fell in 607 BC. It was actually 586, 587 BC. This was ju they just didn't know, right? They were pretending to have knowledge they didn't have. They misunderstood history. But they based their predictions and their prophecies on a misunderstanding of 607 BC. So there's a whole side study you can do on how they try to like spin history to support their dating. But there's a, there's a bigger issue here. Who cares what day Babylon fell in regarding to the return of Christ? Like this is not important. It's irrelevant. The nature of Christ's return is what I want to talk about. And they say Jesus invisibly returned scripture. In fact, Jesus himself directly comments about things like this. If someone says that Jesus comes back to not listen. So let's put that verse up. Matthew 24 verse 23 through 27 says, and Jesus himself speaking, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is. Don't believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead you, uh, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms. That means hidden, right? He's hidden in some inner room. You can't see him. He's hidden somewhere. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, everyone will see him. Another verse that talks about this is Revelation 1.7. It says, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every I will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Scripture makes it clear. You don't even need to investigate claims about a secret return of Jesus. You, Jesus just says, don't believe it. If it's secret, it's not true. This is, um, this is the biggest issue with the whole 1914 thing. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. 
because they don't think about it the same way we do. Yeah, not even uh, not even remotely. Yeah. Um, so they celebrate the death of Christ, but they don't exactly celebrate his resurrection the same way. And they don't think his death accomplished what we think it accomplished. It's, it's all it's all similar words with different meanings. Uh, on jehoviswitness.org or jw.org, they say Jesus was resurrected with a spirit body. So he comes as a spirit creature, not in the flesh. Now, official teaching of the church is actually conflicted about what actually happened to Jesus's body. But um, so some of it says we don't know what happened, but other documents say very clearly this is the, this is the verdict. Jesus's body was dissolved and God just like dissolved, like atomized Jesus's body. That's why the tomb was empty. That's why they couldn't find him because God just destroyed it. And uh, in studies in the scriptures, volume five, remember that's like their six volume set that started the whole movement. It says the man, Jesus is dead forever dead. Now they don't, they don't think he didn't rise. They think the man, the humanity is dead forever gone. But look at what scripture says, because scripture actually weighs in on this. Was, was the body that Jesus raised in and showed up in, was it the same as the body that died? So did he physically rise? John 2, 19 and, and verse 21, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what was he going to raise up? He was going to raise up the very body that they destroyed. Jesus' promise is that he would physically resurrect the same body he was living in on the earth. Now, after his resurrection, we have more evidence to support this. In John 20, verses 25 through 28, Thomas is doubting Jesus. He says he wants to see Jesus, and he wants to put his finger into the nail holes in Jesus's hands. So it says here, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Notice Thomas's request. He's like, I want to actually touch the holes that were caused by the nails that were on the cross. So he doesn't just want to touch any old finger holes, right? Like he wants to touch the actual injuries caused by the crucifixion. Eight days later, it says in verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Now, Jehovah's Witness teaching says about this, that this was a fake body that was fabricated just to make them think Jesus had resurrected. In other words, Jesus is perpetrating a deception on Jehovah's Witness teaching. But according to the Bible, he's raising the very body that died. That's the body that gets raised up. And there's one more piece of evidence I'll throw in there. And that is that the, the very Jewish idea of resurrection is not spiritual. The Jews did not believe in a spiritual resurrection. If they said resurrection, they meant physical. If you were talking about spiritually, you know, living after you die, they would use a different word. So just the very word resurrection means physical resurrection. A Jehovah's Witness teaching denies all that and ultimately denies the resurrection of Christ. Uh, this just terrifies me for just just the people that are involved in this religion like they yeah it's just everything about it just i think it's just a reminder of the importance of making the bible your final authority like it yeah. it can't go beyond that you can't say anything beyond that like it's just that's yeah. it We're not one of the most common things i hear from former jehovah's witnesses is how confused they are because imagine if you've been hearing all these false teachings your whole life 
I mean, just thoroughly indoctrinated in scriptures out of context and unbiblical teachings and thinking it's in the name of Jesus. And my heart goes out to them because it takes years to undo all the weird teachings that they've, they've, you know, put into your head. Yeah, that, that is, it does. It seems like it takes, yeah, we'll talk about that in our next webinar, but um, all right, we'll make this our last question for just this first session. Uh, and then one of the, I saw a question come through, so I'll ask a question for this question. Um, but they don't believe that, like for us, we know Jesus is enough for salvation. Like it's just Jesus alone. It's not, not our works, not, but they, they don't believe that, that as I, apparently because we see them walking around knocking on doors. So there's a lot of things added to the Jehovah Witness religion that they tell you you have to do to be saved. So talk on that. Yeah. So um, the, uh, here's a quote from Studies in the Scriptures, uh, Volume 1, page 150, on this topic. It says, you know, about Jesus's death. I think we have this for, for uh, the screen here. I don't think I have it up there. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just read it to you. Maybe I didn't give it to you. Um, it says, the ransom for all given by the man Christ Jesus does not give or guarantee everlasting life or blessing to any man. They very clearly teach that Jesus is not enough. So the question is, well, then what do you have to do, right? And they have four requirements. And all four of the requirements are anti-Christian, ultimately, anti-biblical. Uh, the first one is you have to take in knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So take in knowledge of God. What does that mean? It means that you, you, you stop believing Jesus is God. You start believing he's Michael the archangel. You stop believing he resurrected physically. You start believing he just spiritually was glorified. Um, so you have to take in false knowledge. Then number two, you have to obey God's laws. And by God's laws, what do they mean? Do they mean like the Old Testament law? No, no, they mean all the rules that the watchtower gives you to live your life. There's a very large number of different rules and policies. Like they even control things like beards and stuff like that. I couldn't have this beard if I was. <laughs> that's, all, that's what a lot of guys do when they leave the watchtower. They just grow a beard. <laughs> like, yes, finally. Yeah. Um, and now they, uh, they say, number three, you have to belong to the Jehovah's Witness organization. As we read earlier about the governing body, you have to belong to them. So you have to be in a fit. This isn't just, I have allegiance to them. You have to officially belong, be on the rolls and be accepted on the rolls. And they can threaten to take you off the rolls if, if you don't do what they want. And number four, you have to have, quote, loyalty. Or you have to promote the, the JW organization by giving out or selling its material. And this is why they go door to door. It's part of their salvation. You have to be an active publisher. That's at least an hour a month. And you have to submit reports on how many doors you went to and when, when you were actively out there working. You have to attend regular services. And all of these are required for salvation. This is completely contrary to what scripture teaches, that we were saved uh, by grace through faith. And it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one should boast. That's Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 right there on the screen. That this is a salvation by grace. And Romans eleven six, 6, it, it tells us that if you add works, it's not even grace anymore. It's as if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So this is interesting because Paul's like arguing about definitions of words. He's like, look, if you say it's works, it's not grace. Like these are incompatible things. I'm either saved freely by Jesus or I add my works, in which case I'm saying, Jesus, your grace isn't enough. And so that's why it's, uh, it's so important. And I think one of the liberties that Jehovah's Witnesses have when they come to Christ is they go, I'm forgiven. I, didn't, I don't earn it. I don't do something to, to, to stay in it. I, I, I just am given salvation and I live from that place of salvation, not for that place of salvation. Um, one of the questions that someone wrote in, I just saw it as it zoomed by, um, mm. but 
she, I th- and I'm, I'm uh, there it is. Uh, my daughter was raised in a Christian home. She became a Jehovah Witness as an adult. She accepted the Lord as Savior at 10. Will she be saved? Oh, I, these, honestly, these are the kind of questions. I, I have a really yeah. hard time because yeah. I don't know somebody's heart. Um, when it comes to trying to predict whether somebody's saved or not, we have a clear indication, which is, do they at least verbally declare the truth of Christ and that they affirm his, his identity, his death and his resurrection. And so if they're like, Oh, I believe in, you know, Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And it's the true Jesus. Well, then I at least have a reason to think that they're saved, but do I know their heart? Are they genuine? Are they one of those who says Lord, Lord, but Jesus never knew them. I don't know that. And only the Lord knows in that day. So the, the, the question I'd have if I was trying to figure out the answer to this question would be to pull her aside and find out, though she says she's Jehovah's Witness, does she really believe these doctrines? A lot of people don't believe the stuff that their religious group believes, right? They have their own set of ideas. So you might find out where, where, she, uh, where she is in that way. Um, but she's definitely in danger, right? Because Jehovah, she's part of a group that clearly teaches a false gospel with a false Jesus. And so that all the red flags should be going up and all the effort should be made in love and grace without anger to try to bring her the awareness of, of Christ. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting because I know Mike, the first time I really talked to you on the phone, we were, we were talking about something, but I was having a meltdown about someone that I was afraid wasn't really a Christian and they said they were a Christian. So of course I start crying. <laughs> You're probably like, who is this? One? <laughs> But you said the coolest thing to me. You said, you know, Lisa, at, at some point you have to put, you have to add another box to your life that says, I don't know. And I'm going to have to be, I'm trusting this person with God. And that's the box that they're going to go in. And I don't know. And I have to be okay with that. So that really helped me um, to, to get past that. So, all right. So let's talk. Uh, we talked a little bit about salvation and let's talk now about God. Like they have, they have an interesting, because like we believe God a certain way and so do they. So what is their belief in, in God? Mm. Now, I, I just want to make clear that people know, uh, so people know there's a difference between sort of like in-house debates and discussions amongst Christians, like about uh, the gifts of the spirit, um, you know, questions about all kinds of issues, uh, baptism and things like that. But, but this is not an in-house discussion. When we talk about the very nature of who God is, and if, 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 if you're substantially different than scripture, it in no way is a Christian thing at all. And so the view of God on Jehovah's Witnesses is very different. And it has to do mostly with the doctrine of the Trinity. They definitely reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, oddly enough, if you know theology well, you'll see that what they actually reject is, is called modalism. What they usually do is they, they argue that what we believe is something called modalism, that the Father became the Son who then became the Spirit, which is not a Trinity, right? That's just him like changing clothes, so to speak. Um, and then they argue against that view. Um, so it's very confusing when you're, when you're talking with them about it, but they believe that Jesus, he's not God in the flesh. No, no, he's a created being. He's Michael, the archangel. They believe the Holy spirit is not personal is, is, is actually an active force and has no personality uh, would therefore have no will or intentions or desires or things like that, because it's just like God's like energy or something like that. Okay. So they say the Trinity is pagan and we can support it in the old Testament thoroughly people don't even realize how strong the old testament teaches uh, and supports at least the doctrine of the trinity and we can teach it in the new testament very 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 thoroughly which is why they have their own translation of the bible called the new world translation where they systematically alter texts that teach the trinity so it won't give us the deity of jesus in particular or the personhood of the holy spirit 
So this is, this, is, this is where they deny fundamental Christian truth. This is why they have to say that Christians since the second century AD have been totally off the rails, uh, you know, part of the kingdom of Satan, all Christians from that time, because we have this doctrine called the Trinity. So they have to change the Bible. They have to deny church history. Well, John 5.23 says this. It's, it's Jesus himself speaking. He says that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, I honor the father as God. I should honor the son the same way. And those are from Jesus's own words. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty serious divergence from biblical teaching here. You did a study on the Trinity. It was really good. So if somebody really wants to know more about it, like that's what I love about when you teach, like you're just very methodical about this verse, this, this goes with it. it it's really good. So if you're confused about that, then. Um, yeah. And can I say for that teaching, it's, 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 um, are we right about the Trinity? I think is the name of the teaching, but the idea I did there is I took objections to the Trinity and I put a bunch of them up at the front of the study and asked a bunch of challenging, hard questions. Then I did an explanation of the Trinity and then I answered all the objections systematically. And so that was meant to bring people from a place of confusion to a place of clarity on the topic. Okay. Um, lots of questions coming through about um, how do I share Jesus with my Jehovah witness um, neighbors, friends, things like that. So we're going to get to that. But what I want to do is I, I want to make that towards the end because if we get through the, the main, what they believe first, then I think we can go into 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 all that yeah, some um, tactics, yeah. they spend a lot of time you know of course the word jehovah jehovah witness mm -hmm. jehovah what explain that portion of it yeah so the name jehovah is very very significant for the group jehovah's witnesses not just because it's in the name of the group but because they think that it's god's proper name and it's properly pronounced jehovah and god ultimately will not respect you or respond to you if you don't call him by his name and that is their, that is their doctrine on this. Um, so let me give you a couple of verses they use to support this. And here's how they'll, if they hit you at your door, they'll say, Hey, are you using God's name? Well, Acts 4.12, it says there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so they imply like, if you don't use his name, you're not going to be saved. But if you just read the whole entry, Acts 4 verses 10 through 12, the very verse that they use is actually about Jesus, not the name Jehovah. Mm -hmm. It says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name. Uh, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Acts 4.12 is about Jesus. He's the name you've got to call on. And I don't think God cares about pronunciation. Jesus, Yesu in the, in the Greek, um, Jesus in, in Spanish or Yeshua in Hebrew. God doesn't care. It's about who he is that, and that you're calling on him. Another verse they use for this is Romans 10.13, where it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. So this is, um, this is actually quoting the Old Testament. It's quoting Joel 2, 32, which is about Yahweh or, or Jehovah. But if you look at it in context, it talks about Jesus, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it says, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is, again, this is about Jesus. These are actually their proof texts. So the, the very texts that they're quoting often prove them wrong. And this is actually really the case for cults in general, 
they usually quote verses that prove them wrong if you just look at them in context. If you don't know what else to do, just slow down, look at the verses before and after, and you'll usually see right through it. Now, ironically, the, the phrase Jehovah is probably the wrong pronunciation of God's name in the Bible. Uh, we, we see it capital L-O-R-D in our Old Testament. When we see Jehovah, it comes up many, many times, thousands of times in the Old Testament. Well, it was like, we don't know how it's translated for sure, but it was likely translated Yahweh. That's like the, the scholarly majority says it was translated Yahweh or it's pronounced Yahweh. Um, but it definitely wasn't Jehovah. It might've been Yehovah, but it wasn't Jehovah because there's no J in Hebrew. There's just no J sound in the language at all. But Russell didn't know this. Those guys didn't know this because they don't know the languages like they're pretending they do sometimes. So ironically, what the Jehovah's Witnesses have been taught to do is focus on a wrong pronunciation of Jehovah instead of on the true identity of Jehovah. They want you to say you have to pronounce and say his name right while yet denying who he is and thereby like the whole idea just backfires in a terrible spiritual disaster. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the 144,000. <laughs> uh, Cause right. they really like somewhere along the line, I'm not certain how they, got this all wrong because it's like the bible is very clear in revelation who the 144,000 are so how do they get away with with thinking what they think yeah so they take a, a puzzling passage in, in revelation that talks about 144,000 um and you know they say this is the anointed class they're the only ones who take communion when they pass communion around they're the only ones who actually partake it's a special group who's going to reign in heaven in spiritual bodies they won't get a physical resurrection they'll just reign in heaven in spiritual bodies according to them the rest of mankind will be annihilated or 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 other jw's who are not part of the 144,000 they'll live on paradise earth in uh remade bodies but the passage they quote is revelation 7 verses 4 through 8 which is not talking about anything like that it's talking about the end times that's true and it says that they're 144,000 people sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it names the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtali. You know, it goes through all the tribes. Well, in, the, in another parallel passage in Revelation 14, verses 3 through 4, it shows more about these 144,000. It says that, um, let's see, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These... So there, we know three things about these 144,000 based on Revelation. One, they are Jewish, 12,000 from each tribe. Two, they are males. Three, they are virgins. They haven't fornicated and they also have not gotten married. So they haven't done either of those things. Those are the three things we know. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, they take the, the 144,000 number and they say that's literal. There's literally 144,000. But they're not Jews. They're not from the tribes. They're not male and they're not virgins. This is, this is like exactly how you see that someone's making up new theology, right? They just take a verse and rip it out of context. If Revelation's literal here, which I tend to think it is, is talking about actual Jews, basically a revival amongst Israel in the end times, and I'm looking forward to that. If it's symbolic, well, then the whole 144,000 teaching just goes out the window in the, you know, altogether. Um, no serious person who studies Revelation thinks that the Jehovah's Witness interpretation has even a chance of being right. I go back to that. So they say that there's, so like I'm a Jehovah witness and I'm going door to door and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Yeah. There's way more than 144,000 Jehovah witnesses on this earth. You said there's 8 million, blah, blah, blah. So mm -hmm. what, oh, yeah, what's 
what's the deal with that? What's like the deal I- with that? So um, this is where I think the teaching evolved. I think initially it was a small group. So he thought 144,000, are you going to get in? But once they grew beyond that, they had to have something to explain all the people that wouldn't fit that number. So now they have two groups of Jehovah's Witnesses, this sort of super, super godly 144,000 people. And then there's everybody else. And they have two different destinations. When these people die and, you know, in the future, they're going to be up in heaven, actually with God. And then the rest of these people will be on earth at the new earth. Now, Revelation talks about how there's going to be no difference, right? Heaven comes to earth, the new Jerusalem comes down, God is with us on earth. So, so these, these two separate things don't make sense biblically, but that's the teaching they have. Um, you talk about, because they, you know, they go to door to door, of course, we know that. Why, why is, what's their reasoning behind that? Like, it has to have something to do with this whole workspace. Yes. So part of the reason for the Jehovah's, let's just take like the motivations are different for the individual witness, the one who's going around, it's different than the motivation for the organization. For the individual witness, their motivation is um, for, uh, for salvation, uh, because they have to do this to maintain membership and to be considered an, quote, an active publisher. That's like a category you want to make sure you're in. And so they, they have to do this. This is, they have to report their hours every week and that sort of thing. It's, there's a lot of pressure there and they want to, they want to go to heaven. Um, oddly enough, they, they, I don't know if you've noticed this. Okay. I've no, I've seen it so many times that I, it's more than a trend is that they walk so slow. And <laughs> I thought when I've gone witnessing even door to door and I walk so fast from house to house, cause I've only got so much time. Right. And I want to get as many of these tracks out and share with people. They walk so slow. Well, when I actually interviewed former Jehovah's witnesses, they told me that this is not only a fact, it's a joke amongst Jehovah's witnesses and they call it the pioneer plod. Because people going door to door are pioneers, they call them. And they call it the pioneer plod because they trend, they're trying to wait out their hour. They don't have to hit a certain number of doors. They have to be out there for a certain amount of time. So yeah. it's, it's a works thing. Uh, now, for the organization, it's all about growth. Because as they go door to door, they're handing out magazines. They're giving out magazines. They're publishing, publishing. That started from Russell, right? And this is how they promote the group. And to them, it's also the organization. It's also like a point of proof. They think that they're the only group of people who were doing the work that Jesus told us to do when he says, like, go into all the world. And they say, we're the only ones publishing door to door. But this isn't even true. There's, there's, there's churches that go door to door. There's um, around the world. Here's a quick statistic for you. In 2004, Jehovah's Witnesses baptized 200,000 people, which is quite a few, right? But they have a really low retention rate. People don't tend to stay for very long. Um, but the, just the Baptists, just one, one denominational group within Christianity, they baptized 600,000 people and planted 21,000 new churches. But the Jehovah's Witnesses are told that one way they know that the Watchtower is the true church of God is that they're, they're the only ones really publishing God's word to people. But this is just not true. They're just isolated, so they don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. At any rate, it's not even evangelism because what they're publishing is not the gospel. So it, it's, if anything, all these door-to-door trips are not a good work. They're a bad work. Yeah, exactly. It's very deceptive. Um, okay, let's talk about, um, you interviewed, and it was a really good interview with the, the couple that they were Jehovah Witnesses. And mm-hmm. honestly, the, the church keeps them so busy that they don't even have time to think. So talk about like a day in the, a week in the life of a Jehovah Witness. Yeah, so they talked about when they had were, were more earlier converts, when they had just sort of first gotten involved in the group. And I asked them what their re- regular week was like. And they said, well, on Monday, they walked through the week. They said, on Monday, we'd spend about two hours preparing for Tuesday where we would have Bible study time, which is really 
studying Watchtower material, not the Bible, right? They quote the Bible out of context, but they don't study it. So Monday, two-hour prep. Tuesday, they would have about two hours of study time doing their meeting, a gathering. On, on Wednesday, they would have another two hours of preparation time. On Thursday, another two-hour meeting. This is to do another Bible study going through Watchtower literature. Remember, there's just mountains of literature they have to go through. On Saturday, they would do at least one hour of witnessing and then sometimes other labors. Maybe they would go and they would work on the, on the building, on the local building, because a lot of them are artisans uh, and, and uh, workmen with their hands. Then on Sunday, they have their regular church services, their gathering. So six days a week, you've got stuff that's, that fits right into the free time you had when you got off work that day, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're very busy. Now, this has two results, if you think about it. One, it creates social isolation. And you become a Jehovah's Witness, let's say you're a new convert even, you just, you don't have time for anybody else in your life, right? It's all just going to be Jehovah's Witnesses. So you get social, socially isolated and, you're, and this is going to make it harder for you to think clearly about issues or to leave the group. And two, you have no time to really study the Bible on your own, to go and research anything, to go and find out the problems that there, there might be because all your time is spent getting indoctrinated into Watchtower literature and then doing tasks for the Watchtower. Oh, Mike, that's so scary. It really, it really is. Um, which is why you talk about how we need to be the most compassionate people to them. Like a lot of people are just like, you're, get out of my yard. You know, you're a crazy person. But really, when you understand all the things that they have to do in their mindset, you almost have to feel really sad for them. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I've seen comments like on my YouTube videos where they're like, well, I just say this to Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> and they, and they're like thinking of ways to mock or ridicule them. And I'm like, that's so ungodly. It's so unchristian. I think we have to be careful. I, th I think a great analogy is to treat Jehovah's Witnesses like, like a contagious victims, right? They've, they've, they've contracted something that's hurting them. They're also contagious. So you have to be careful that you don't contract it as well. So you prepare yourself, you glove up or whatever, and you go and you try to assist them without getting it yourself. And that's, that's my goal as I witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I want to seek to help them out of the deceit without getting myself deceived at the same time. Jesus's attitude though, I mean, the people are crucifying him. His attitude is father, forgive them. You know, he says, turn the other cheek. He has such an attitude of compassion and love. Christianity is by nature invitational. God made one of his most successful apostles out of a murderer, Saul. And, and so the church had a hard time with this, right? When Saul first got saved, they were like, we don't know. We're not so sure that he's really genuine or not. And that's understandable. But, but God is wanting to do a supernatural work where he takes these people, brings them to the true light of the gospel, restores and renews their lives, and we can be the ones inviting them into that and, and definitely not the ones uh, who want to mock and ridicule and name call and add more burdens onto the burdens they're already experiencing. Perfect. You, you have a verse in there too. Yeah. Um, this is a great verse for witnessing uh, just to remind ourselves of our attitude. Um, it says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge, a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And this is, this is, it sets the tone for us, gentleness, respect, willing to, so we engage in disagreement, but we do it with a certain attitude. We, we engage to say, Hey, you're wrong, but it's only because we want to get you right with God. It's a battle, not against you. It's a battle for you. And that's uh, that's our, our attitude. Perfect. Um, 
if you were a Jehovah Witness and you, you know, your whole world is basically your friends, the people, the church body. So like you said, it's very uh, inward, you know, it's just that this specific group. But what happens if you, let's say you've got a, someone here listening today and they're like, I need to leave the church. But if I leave the church, then, then my entire all the people that I know, like my, my whole base is gone too. So, mm. so, so talk, talk to that. What happens if a person leaves and what, if they're like, I'm going to really go and follow Jesus, the biblical Jesus now, it really is. It's a, it's a tough decision. Yeah. I mean, it would be, we can understand it as in to be tough because you're leaving a social circle, but it's, it's more than that. And Jehovah's witnesses, they're what they're taught makes it a lot more than that. So what I, what I want to do is first share with you this, um, <clears throat> according to like jwfacts.com, which I find to be a very useful resource for researching these things, over 1% of Jehovah's Witnesses are shunned every year. Shunned, I use that word shunned. Let, let's talk about what it means to shun or to disfellowship because disfellowshipping isn't just a spiritual, like you're not part of our congregation. It's a lot more than that. It's not like biblical excommunication or, or disfellowshipping. It's, it goes way beyond that. So here's some quotes from the Watchtower so you can see it in their own words. Um, the first one's Watchtower, 1963, July 15th, 15th, page 444. The wrongdoer has to realize that his status is completely changed, that his faithful Christian relatives thoroughly disapprove of his wicked course and show this disapproval by limiting contacts to only those which are unavoidable. Imagine if your children did this to you. Imagine if your parents did this to you, your wife or your husband did this to you. This is what they teach you to do. Um, in Kingdom Ministry, August 2002, page three, they wrote this. What about speaking with a disfellowship person? Like, this is like even a question they have to ask. Are you allowed to talk to them? Well, it says, while the Bible does not cover every possible situation, 2 John 10 helps us get Jehovah's view of the matter. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, neither receive him into your homes or say a greeting to him. Now, just so you know, uh, in 2 John verse 10, what this is actually talking about here is um, about missionaries who are bringing false gospels. Don't be a host to them where you take them into your home and they stay with you for like a week when you feed them and you help them on their mission. It's not talking about just talking to people. At any rate, they go on and say, commenting on this, the watchtower of September 15th, 1981, page 25 says, a simple hello to someone can be the first step that develops into a conversation and maybe even a friendship. These are obviously dangerous things. Would we want to take that first step with a disfellowship person? After hearing a talk at a circuit assembly, a brother and his fleshly sister realized that they needed to make adjustments in the way they treated their mother, who lived elsewhere and who had been disfellowshipped for six years. Immediately after the assembly, the man called his mother, and after assuring her of their love, he explained that they could no longer talk to her unless they were important family matters requiring contact. <sighs> this is, this is I, there's more. I, I, I got to read these quotes to you because it, it puts it in their own words. Uh, Watchtower 1970, June 1st, page 351 and 352 says this, yet there might be some absolutely necessary family members of matters requiring communication, such as legalities over a will or property, but the disfellowship relative should be made to appreciate that his status has changed, that he is no longer welcome in the home, nor is he a preferred companion. I mean, what are you telling, like, say, a wife to treat to do to her husband? When make sure he knows he's not your preferred companion. Like, that's destructive to marriages. That's not biblical. In Watchtower 1952, they wrote, <clears throat> "If the children are of age, then there can be a departing and breaking of family ties in a physical way because the spiritual ties have already snapped." 
So if your kids are like over 18, you could just cut them off entirely. Now, what does scripture say? It does talk about a, a, a separation in the church, right? But it doesn't at all relate this to a family shunning or anything like that. In fact, it says, hey, wives, 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, make it work. Be a great wife. Honor God. First Peter talks about it too. Honor God. You're, you should be a better wife, husband, father, son, daughter. You should be better because you're a Christian, not worse. And if they're unbelievers, it doesn't change that obligation. <clears throat> so you can find on the internet all kinds of stories from Jehovah's Witnesses, former JWs, talking about how they were shunned, about how when people see them, they will cross the street just to avoid them. So they can just, because they can't even say hello. They'll talk about stories about how within a week, um, the, the local leaders of their congregation went and just ripped on them to all their friends and family. They called everybody to make sure that they knew, don't talk to them anymore. Now, here's a question. Why on earth are they doing this? And some think it's because they're just so mad at the people they're shunning. And I have a different theory. My theory is this. Once Jehovah's Witnesses start thinking outside the box, they quickly become you know, deconversion experiences and they leave the group and they often become Christians, true Christians. Well, that's contagious. And so to protect the people that are still in the bubble, they quickly cut off entirely those who are not. It's to keep it from, uh, keep what they discovered from getting to these people who they still have control of. Okay. Oh man. All right. It's crazy stuff. Uh, Where we have our Bible study, they always said, well, they used to have a, a whole section of or Jehovah Witnesses that would come. They would sit right out front. It would always be on Wednesday when we were at Bible studies. And then all of a sudden they moved and they moved down by our sign in a whole, whole different place. But while they were there, one day I was thinking, how, how can we tell them about the true Jesus? Because anything we give them, like they're going to throw away. So I thought, I was reading Nabil Qureshi's book, um, Seeking All of Finding Jesus. And I thought, well, if I give them this book, then maybe, maybe they'll be like, something they'll correlate like false religion, false religion, and maybe, you know. But mm. then I realized that they were going to just throw it away because they yeah. really are taught not to read anything. And I think that was one of the questions that came through. How do you explain to someone that they, they won't read anything that you're offering them? They won't read the Bible that you're offering them. So h- how do you even get through to someone like that? Yeah, I had a similar experience. I actually had a pamphlet that was for Jehovah's Witnesses. And I went and I got these pamphlets and I checked them out and I thought, yeah, this is great. And then when I encountered Jehovah's Witnesses, I was like, here, I'll take yours and I promise to read it. Will you take mine? And they visibly backed away from what I was trying to hand them like it was uh, dangerous or something. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why won't they? And I didn't realize till later what's going on here. Um, they will not take any of your literature as a standard rule. If, you take, if they take your stuff, this is either they're going to throw it away, like you said, or they'll read it in rebellion to what they've been taught. Like the, so the chances are they're not going to do that. But the public relations side of Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, research us, test our claims. That's the PR side of JWs. But in-house, what they actually tell to their people, and I've heard this from JWs myself, they're, they're told in public, they're all told, don't Google Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. do not use Google to research who we are or what we are. You'll end up getting lies. Like don't use anything. In fact, they say, go ahead and research, but you're only supposed to use the watchtowers research tool found on JW.org. So they want you to research, but only their own material. So if you can only use watchtower published literature and you can only use the research tool that they give you with the documents that they've written. And the rule is trust the governing body. This is, this is actually, um, I used to be a domestic violence counselor and this is what's called isolation. 
I want to isolate you from any friends or any other influences. Like some, sometimes in a domestic violence home, uh, parents don't want a kid to go to school, to go to college, because they're afraid that the teachers will become an, an influence in that student's life. And they want to be the only one influencing you, that kind of thing. So this is like a DV tactic that goes on. Um, this, this does create a big challenge. Um, it, it's, it's keeping the bubble, right? In, in modern times, we'll talk about Mormonism next week, but Mormonism has done the opposite of this. They've just said, okay, read whatever you want, like do whatever you want. Like we're just going to take it all on faith. The Jehovah's Witnesses have done, instead of they've, they've locked down and done hyper control. And so it's like an experiment between two cults, like which one works better in modern times. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, don't look outside the bubble. Don't go anywhere else. Only trust our stuff. And it creates a ton of distrust in the Jehovah's Witness towards you, towards other translations, even if they'll say they don't have that distrust, they do. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's abusive. Yeah. How do you, how do you break through? Okay. You've got a Jehovah Witness neighbor and you're just like, I really want to share Christ, mm -hmm. but they won't take anything. So how do you even break through or, or, I mean, I, I know yeah. God has to do something in their heart, but. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think things, ways to break through are sharing your own genuine relationship with Christ. This just trips them out because they're like, what? Because they don't have a real relationship with Christ, but also they don't think you do. <laughs> so, right. um, so when you just share with them that, that's just kind of like a weird thing. It opened their eyes, but also using their literature is what I recommend. And this, this takes homework on my part. I have to already know ahead of time where I can go in Watchtower literature to show them these quotes. Like you could take the quotes I gave earlier, but I would go and find them on jw.org, find them in their archive, right? Use their stuff so that they will, because they don't mind if you show them their own material and talk about it, right? They're going to have to read that and take it as, as truth. So that's the strategy I usually use. And we'll come back and talk more about how to, how to share Christ with someone. But let's go to um, our last question before we actually do that. Okay. Um, the, the translation of the Bible, the they have a completely different translation. So yeah. how about that? Because they, they just have messed up this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you, and when you put it all together, you see, yeah, trust the governing body. Don't research. Only read our material. Don't even read the Bible on your own. Only read our kind of stuff. And then to kind of come alongside that, they have their own translation of the Bible where whenever the Bible disagrees with their theology, they just change it. I mean, this is, it's, it's as, I think it works because it's so bold. I think that it's so out there, the deception is so bold and in your face that that actually helps, at least for some people, maybe for the more gullible people, I don't know, or people who just want to lean on authority. At any rate, <clears throat> their translation of the Bible is called the New World Translation, and it wasn't done like normal translations are done. Uh, normally, you get a committee of scholars, and they're credentialed in different areas, and you put them together, and they work carefully, and they oversee and double-check each other's work and all that kind of thing. That's how, um, you know, the New King James Version is made, or the ESV, or the NIV, all these different translations. How was the New World Translation done? Well, this is weird, but according to the Watchtower, it's done by a secret committee of anonymous individuals that just want to give all the honor to God so they won't tell you who they were. <laughs> right. That works. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know there's a guy named Raymond Franz, though. Raymond Franz was a former member of the governing body. We're talking the elite guys, right? He was one of the elite guys. He left the Watchtower. And then he wrote a book called Crisis of Conscience, where he made very clear that the Watchtower was not of God. And this guy is a guy from inside, as high up as it goes, the governing body. And he told us who actually translated the Watchtower's book. You can get his book. It's on Amazon, Crisis of Conscience. And he gave us four names, four people. And one of them, Fred Franz. Yeah, same name, because it's Raymond Franz's uncle, right? Fred Franz. So his uncle 
was the principal translator and had the most education in, in uh, Greek and Hebrew. And what is his education? Two years of Greek and self-taught in Hebrew. Now, for those who don't know language, let me just say this. When I was taking Greek, and I will not try to translate the Bible, but when I was taking Greek, my Greek teacher said to me, you know, after 10 years of working with Greek every day, you start to really understand it. It's just a big job to translate the Bible is all I'm saying. And you don't want this guy with two years of Greek. He's a noob. He doesn't know what he's doing. Right? Two years is nothing when it comes to translating Greek. Okay. It's just nothing. Um, so they'll deceptively quote scholars. Um, they'll quote scholars out of context in their literature to try to make it look like people like the New World Translation or that they think it's good, but it's totally deceptive. Here's what scholars really think about this work. I'm going to give you some quotes. Uh, Dr. Julius Manti, the author of Emanuel Grammar of the Greek New Testament, she calls the New World Translation, quote, a shocking mistranslation. Bruce Metzger, who's one of the biggest names in Greek in the world, Bruce Metzger, and in, in the New Testament in particular, he's a professor of New Testament or was uh, at Princeton University. He calls the New World Translation, quote, a frightful mistranslation, erroneous, pernicious, and reprehensible. Dr. William Barclay, he, he said that the deliberate distortion of truth by this sect is seen in their New, trans, uh, their New Testament translation. It is abundantly clear that a sect which can translate the New Testament like this is intellectually dishonest. So basically what they do, the short version is this, wherever the Bible is going to affirm a truth that they don't like, they change it. Right, so Titus 2.13, it says in our, in our ESV, it says, and in every other translation, it's going to say something like this, right? That Jesus is our great God and Savior, right? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In uh, the New World Translation, though, they say of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, right? But except that this is based on a really well-respected rule in Greek, and it's, it's called the Granville Sharps rule. I'm not going to try to explain it because like, who cares? <laughs> uh, but the point is this. It's like when we say um, uh, this is like a standard rule of grammar in English, that's what this is for Greek. And what it means is that everyone knows that Titus 2.13 is saying that Jesus, one person, is our great God and our Savior. That's clearly in the text. They just totally change it. They do it again in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. It uh, says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in a normal translation, Jesus is God and Savior. But in the New World Translation, it says, through the righteousness of our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. So it just adds words to change the meaning. Here's the crazy thing. The New World Translation, the committee, they knew about the Granville Sharps rule because they use this rule everywhere else in the Bible where it's applied and they ignore it when it's about the deity of Jesus. Okay. There's other places as well. Um, uh, I'll just go to, we'll just go to John 1, 1. We'll look at that as a, a final one real quick. But in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's just about every translation is going to hold that the same way. This is a really careful construction. Dan Wallace says like this was written and he's, he's a Greek expert. He says the way this was written in John 1, 1, it was like written to support the doctrine of the Trinity and to keep you away from, you know, modalism on one side or, um, or, or other errors on the other side. So, the New World Translation, though, it adds one little word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a uh, God. Wait, what? <laughs> like, this is, Christians are like, wait, a uh, God? Since when are there even more than one God? There's only one God. This is like, monotheism is like, kind of a big deal in the Bible, right? But they can't handle John 1.1. 1, 1. It so clearly teaches the deity of Christ, that he is, he is God and with God, right? These two pillars of the doctrine of the Trinity, that they just change it. 
There's no justification for this. But hardly any Jehovah's Witnesses know anything about Greek, so they trust the, uh, the watchtower. So whenever it's the deity of Jesus, they change it. Um, they also add, uh, peculiarly, they add the word Jehovah into the New Testament 237 times. Now, in the Greek New Testament, we don't have the word. In the Old Testament, it's there thousands of times. But in the, in the New Testament, the word never occurs, right? The name of God. They just say Lord or Kurios. But sometimes they'll translate this 237 times as Jehovah. Oddly enough, um, they'll especially do this if the New Testament is quoting an Old Testament passage and that Old Testament passage said Jehovah, then they'll put Jehovah in the New. You can kind of argue that that kind of works, even if the pronunciation is wrong. You could argue for that. But multiple times in the New Testament where it's calling Jesus Jehovah, they just translate it as Lord. Interesting. (laughs) So they're they're not consistent. This translation has been made to support their theology. So when a Jehovah Witness shows up at your door and you say something, so how, how do you tell them that? Like, ah, do you, I mean, do you, do you bring it out? Do you show them yeah. the difference? So I do have a whole long video on tactics of how to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'll, maybe I'll do more stuff in the future, but let me give you just quick tips. Here's some just real quick tips. One is I say, focus on one issue and you need to know the issue before they come to your door. Don't try to think of it off the top of your head. Stop, spend an hour, spend an afternoon, prepare for this moment. Um, maybe even spend more than that. So you could talk about prophecy. We haven't even talked about the false prophecy. There's a bunch of false prophecy in the history of the Watchtower. And you could show it using Watchtower documents. You print all that out, you get it, you could show it to the JW and you're ready when they come to your door. You could use the New World Translation to actually show who Jesus is. There are, even though they tried to get rid of the deity of Jesus, there's several places where they didn't, right? They just didn't change it enough times. And so you can go to those passages to show the deity of Christ. You could talk about um, birthdays. I know this sounds weird, but we haven't talked about birthdays. They don't believe in birthdays or blood transfusion. That's actually our next question. So you just answer that right now. Yeah. So there's a topic that you can pick though. And believe it or not, a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses really do care about that. Even though it seems trivial, Um, it is something they care about. It might be a foot in the door. Or you could talk about scandals. Right now you can go onto YouTube and you can see video footage of the Australian Royal Commission that shows that the leadership of the Watchtower was systematically hiding child abuse hiding it and refusing to report it to the authorities. Um, This is because of a whole bunch of issues that were going on at the time. Um, These videos are actually leaders of the church on the stand in court. And it's totally damning. So this is something you can actually use to show what, what now am I just trying to be mean? No, no. This whole Jehovah's witness thing is built on trusting the watchtower. And I want you to know, you can't trust those guys. That's the point. I just want them to understand they can't trust them. So you pick one of those topics, any one of those, just pick one, go deep into it, know it really well. And then have a conversation about it. And wherever you get stumped, you're going to write down, well, here's where I got lost, right? And you're going to go back and you're going to get better at that for the next conversation. But I have one last tip, maybe two. (laughs) One is control the conversation. If you bring up a scripture, don't allow them to run somewhere else. Keep talking about that verse until you're done. Uh, Just know that every false group is always going to leapfrog from topic to topic to get away once you've shown that they're wrong on something. So you stay on that issue and you chase it down and chase it down. You will, you will be really sad if you let them change topics and you think, well, I have answers for every question. It'll just turn into a, a waste of conversation though. So control the combo. The next one is just have compassion. Um, it's very easy to turn into a combative thing. Remember, this is outreach. I'm seeking to persuade you of the falsity of things you've been taught about God. That's the whole goal there. And it's going to require a lot of compassion. Uh, someone had written in and wanted to know, um, give us an example of someone that you've actually talked to and 
do you know anyone that it's really actually led them out of the Jehovah Witness Church? Mm. So this is a little bit of a challenge for me because I'm on a blacklist, which means that they don't come to my door anymore. <laughs> so uh, for a number of years, they, in fact, I actually saw them not, that was a couple of years back. I saw them um, maybe two years ago and they were walking down my street as I was coming out of my house. And I was like, oh, and I, I like have radar. Like I know it's Jehovah's Witnesses within three seconds. I could just tell. And so I, I was like, hey, and I was like coming out to go talk to them, you know, on the street um, as they were, cause they were walking past my house. And the lady just looked at me and she said, oh, we already talked to you. And she, they just skedaddled right out of there. So it makes it really hard for me. Um, I have had a lot of conversations in the past that worked really well. I think that what happened was when they saw that I love the word of God and that I knew these verses in context, they were like, well, that's different. And that caused them to actually want to talk with me because I care about it. And I was compassionate. I wasn't rude or anything. Um, the things that I found to be helpful are um, picking, like I said, I picked like John five. I like using John five because you can show Jesus is equal with God. And I know how to answer every argument they have against that. So I'm prepared for that conversation. Um, and I found at least in my mind, some success in that. But the other thing is um, I like to use their actual interlinear Bible. Uh, so the Watchtower produces an interlinear, which has Greek and English on it. And because I know a, just a little bit of Greek, I'm able to actually show them in their own work that they're mistranslating the Bible. And so that's kind of something you have to learn how to do. It takes a lot of education to do that. So I found that to be useful. I remember a guy going like, just looking back and forth going, wait, this is really Watchtower that says this? Because he was so puzzled by how obviously they had mistranslated the Bible. And I talk about that in my video on uh, how to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses. I go through my example there. The, but however, I found also um, my videos online have been really useful. I've had lots of people talk about how they've left the Watchtower and that my videos were really helpful in that. And one of the biggest reasons is because I don't come off like I'm angry at them or making fun of them. And I've had them say, I was only able to watch your video because you weren't rude or mean to me. Right. I, so I think that that's a smart direction to go. Um, I hope that helps. There's my thought. Well, uh, as far as the sharing Christ with someone who knocks on your door, I've decided that if someone comes to my door, I'm just FaceTiming you. <laughs> I'll let you talk to them for me. I'll be like, hey, wait a second. Over. I got this guy that, can, that wants uh, to talk to you. <laughs> I'm worried they might recognize me, though, because my, vid my videos on Jehovah's Witnesses have quite a few views. Um, oh, yeah. Well, it's really great. I mean, a lot of the, the questions that are coming in are just like, Thank you for your videos. It really helped me. Um, I think one of them said they even left the church because of I'm, there, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Right here. Uh, um, uh, one question someone asked uh, was, could you come to actual faith from their bad translation? I thought that was kind of a good question. Um, I, I guess it's like possible because there's at least some places where it's not translated properly, but not likely because um, it, specifically teaches her heretical things like John 1 1 is it says Jesus was a God that's a pretty big deal right yeah. and, and every time the Holy Spirit comes up it depersonalizes the Holy Spirit calls the Holy Spirit it also um, it takes away the Holy Spirit and it so it doesn't say they were filled with the Holy Spirit it says they were filled with Holy Spirit and so it it, it deliberately alters uh, Christian teaching so I I would think at least the tendency is to come up with false theology by reading that their uh, new world translation. Okay. Um, all right. I mean, we're going to ask one last question and then we're going to go to whatever questions that we have on the Q and a, uh, they don't celebrate birthdays, holidays, no blood transfusions. Like what is that all about? All right. Um, <clears throat> boy, I could talk about that for a while too, actually. <laughs> so um, basically there's a, there's a, there's a host of things that they say are 
pagan things that people who call themselves Christians are doing. And those things, like you said, Christmas, birthdays, celebrating various holidays like Easter or, or Fourth of July for that matter, um, celebrating different holidays and also blood transfusions. Now blood transfusions is kind of a different category. Let's talk first about the celebrations that birthdays and stuff like that. Uh, what they do is they create anxiety because they're like, you, you know, Christmas is really the pagan celebration of Saturnalia. It's really Sol Invictus. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Easter is really the celebration of Ishtar and the Easter bunny is a fertility symbol. And you hear all these things. Now I've spent my whole, I've done my homework, right? These claims are blown way out of proportion and you can celebrate Christmas and Easter unto the Lord. Now you can also make it like a totally pagan holiday by just taking Jesus out of it. And it's all about Santa Claus and presents and things like that. That's true. You can do that. But, but what they're talking about is not true, right? Okay. So uh, Christmas celebration doesn't go back to Saturnalia. It's on a different date. It's not even on the same date, right? But th- these are the types of things they say. Jeremiah 10 talks about cutting down Christmas or cutting down trees and decorating them, but it's talking about idols, carving idols. And they try to pretend it's about Christmas trees, which is, it just gets one over on the Christian, right? right. Oh, you're pagan and we're going to fix it for you. You need to trust our organization. When it comes to birthdays, there's only two places in the Bible where birthdays come up, a birthday celebration comes up. And in both of those times, bad things happened right? Like Belshazzar is celebrating his birthday and that's where he dies, the writing <laughs> on the wall and all that. But this isn't because it was a birthday. It's not like God's like, you celebrated your birth, death for you. Like that's not what's going on here. Um, so, for instance, dogs come up in the Bible all the time and usually for bad reasons, right? Dogs are usually seen as a bad thing. And they, you know, you're a dog, the Gentiles and dogs and things like that. This doesn't mean that having a pet dog is wrong. <laughs> like that's silly. It's just silly. Well, so they believe in funerals, but not birthdays, oddly enough. Um, So there's no biblical reason for that, no real biblical case for that. But when it comes to uh, military service, there's an interesting thing here is they they want you to belong to the governing body and not to your nation. Your allegiance is to them, not to any other worldly. So this is a control thing. So you can't do military service. Now, here's an interesting scripture. Luke Luke chapter 3. I don't think I gave you this first, but Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. There's a guy who's in the military and he comes to John the Baptist in the New Testament and he asks him, what do you want me to do? Now, if Jehovah's Witness teaching is true, he should say, resign your commission in the military and, and you belong to God's kingdom. But what John the Baptist says is different. So the soldier asks him, and, what, what, uh, and we, what shall we do as soldiers? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So serve God in a godly way in your job in the military. But they say you can't have military service. So that conflicts with scripture. Finally, with blood transfusions, this is way worse. It's estimated that three Jehovah's Witnesses in the world every day die because they're not allowed to have blood transfusions. They're taught that it's cannibalism. I had a message literally less than a week ago from someone who says that their relative had died because they were Jehovah's Witness and they refused blood transfusions. So they died. Now, in the past, they were taught that if I got a blood transfusion, they're going to be annihilated by God. They'll lose their salvation. Now they teach, it's, it's confusing now. We're not really sure what they're teaching on it. The Watchtower is changing their tune as they do sometimes. But the, the blood transfusion thing is really, really bad. It's, it's, it's scary bad. And thousands and thousands and thousands of JWs have died since the 70s when they first started really pushing this. Yeah. Wow. All right. We're going to go to a few questions. We have uh, about 10 minutes left. Uh, Mark wrote, uh, a Jehovah Witness friend of mine told me she was concerned with the unity of the Christian church. 
She claimed that since the body of the Jehovah Witness cult is so unified, it's more trustworthy than the body of the Christian church, since there are so many denominations. I think that's where they're going. Uh, then she stated, since a Methodist would say something different about baptism than a Baptist, then one of them is wrong um, about everything they claim. She backed it up with scripture, but I don't remember what it was. What do you say about this? Um, <clears throat> okay, so it sounds like unity is a test for truthfulness in her mind. And she's probably been taught that because that, that sounds like a talking point from the watchtower. And we get this from other people too. We're so unified. Look at how unified we are. Well, I think that unity is a secondary issue to the actual doctrines of truth. So for instance, let's say that you came across, let's make a crazy example, a crazy death cult where everyone, when they hit the age of, of, of uh, 30, they, they kill themselves and they're super duper unified. Man, they are so unified, right? They're the most unified group you've ever seen. They all say and believe exactly the same things. They even dress the same. They talk the same. They, they do everything identical. Does this mean that their cult is real and true? See, this is a bad test for truth, right? This, this kind of unity. Second, the type of unity she's talking about is, is not what we mean by Christian unity. Christian unity is about a love, love relationships and commitment to basic Christian truths. Well, with Jehovah's Witnesses, there aren't those basic Christian truths. So it doesn't even qualify for a unity test in the first place. Across denominations, we have differences, but mo most of our denominational things, we're going to say they're still Christians, right? We're, we are still unified. We have, a different, we have a different label, right, for our particular church group, but that doesn't mean that we think we're separate from that other group. We're just saying we have, you know, on secondary issues, we have differences. So I... I have friends that are, that are my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that don't belong to Calvary Chapel, which is where I'm a pastor at. And I, like, Lisa, I didn't even ask you, what, are you a Calvary Chapel? Lisa, I, I bet you better be. Like, I didn't even ask you this because I don't care because we have unity. So denomination doesn't mean disunity. I'm a Mormon. <laughs> huh? I'm a Mormon. Oh, well, that's a different story. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, uh, Iris wrote, my husband read the book Crisis of Conscience by Raymond Franz, a former Jehovah Witness that helped him to receive peace after leaving the organization. Oh, good. He accepted Jesus as his Lord in 2002. Your opinion about that book or anything that would help ex-Jehovah Witnesses? Yeah, um, I have only read snippets of it so far. I've only looked at parts of it, um, but I would definitely at least consider it. I, I, I hesitate to, to just recommend it full on, but, it, but I would definitely consider that. Um, you know, I, I, I read portions of it in preparation for sharing some of the stuff I did with you guys. So yeah, I think that helps. Uh, I think the big, here's the issue, and, and this is where we want to really let our hearts go out to JWs, former JWs. Um, once they come out, they are, it's not like they leave Jehovah's Witnesses and now they have good theology. Right. Everything they've known about God is now in question. Yeah. Every authority they thought was true when it came to believing spiritual things is now in the gutter. And they're so confused. And, and they don't even know where their doctrine is different than biblical doctrine yet. They don't know what to believe. They're so confused. So one of the best things is to get them into regular Bible teaching um, but not like what they've heard proof text taken out of context. No, like regular Bible teaching, getting them to read the Bible, actually read the Bible on their own. That's a, a great thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think they need a lot of personal care in addition to like books and resources. That's good, but man, it's, it's a lot of trauma and a lot of care that needs to be dealt with after someone leaves a group like that. Oh yeah. 
Uh, well, Lynn Wilder, when she left the Mormon church, when she wrote her book, she, she was a tenured professor at BYU. Um, and she said when she finally realized she got out, she sat and read the Bible over and over. She wouldn't read anything besides the Bible because she just wasn't, she didn't believe yeah. anyone or anything. So I guess that is almost what a Jehovah Witness would have to do too, to, mm -hmm. to walk away. Do you know many people that get out and really stay and are okay um, yeah. Yeah, no, it, they, they're, it happens all in all directions. So just because you left the watchtower doesn't mean you came to Jesus, right? So you've, you've, you've left this cult group. It doesn't mean you, you've had an experience with, with the true Christ. So some people, they, they leave the watchtower and they get involved. Maybe they have just cult, they're drawn to cults. So maybe they get involved in some other cult afterwards. They're just like attracted to that sort of thing. Others, um, they sometimes find safety in, in agnosticism. Yeah. Like, you know what, if I don't have to commit to anything, I never have to risk what happened before. And so they find like a, a sense of safety in just sort of like being on the fence on everything after that, or even atheism. So I'm going to atheism because I think it feeds that sense of rebellion that, that there's other reasons, lots of reasons why they might, but I think it does feed that sense of rebellion that they have against what they used to believe. It's like a freedom, a liberty thing. Like I'll do what I want with my life. I don't have to submit to anybody else's rules. I am my own compass for truth now. And so there's like that sense of freedom in that, although atheism robs you of all the value and purpose and meaning right. <laughs> of life. Um, but there is like a sense of freedom that's there that I think is desirable to people. So yeah, I, so my, my thing is to just get you in the word because I'm trusting that God by his spirit will guide and direct you uh, as you read his word without, in fact, let me just quote the watchtower, right? Boy, if you read the Bible and you don't pay attention to scripture studies, you'll end up with all those old Christian doctrines. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, they need the whole truth needs to get in there, and that's that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, okay. Casey wrote, uh, Jehovah Witnesses can be extremely convincing, especially because they bring up verses like John fourteen twenty eight and Ecclesiastes nine five. Are there um, any resources that help answer these objections from Jehovah Witnesses? You probably have logos right in front of you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to pull up John 14, 28. So Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. Um, <clears throat> the, here, there's, I could give the longer version on this. The short version is this, is right. Okay. In Christian teaching, in biblical teaching, which Jehovah's Witnesses will always misrepresent what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about God. And then they'll argue against the misrepresentation. Modalism is what they argue against. But in Christian teaching, Jesus, when he, he, he took on flesh, he was still God in his, his being. His identity is still God, but he also is human. And in that hum, human state, he laid aside his glory, Philippians says. He laid aside his glory. So it's totally fair to say God is, the Father is greater than I, because there's a sense in which the Father is greater. But that that is a temporary situation. Why? Because in John 17, Jesus says to the Father, glorify me with the glory which I have with you before the world was. So Jesus declares, here's really pivotal things about the identity of Christ, that he had um, glory with God, right? The glory of God, because he is God, right? In eternity past, when he became human, he set aside that glory coming lowly as a servant. And then when he goes to be with the Father, it will be to be, receive back his um, full you know, his, his full glory in his position and rightfully as God. So that's consistent with John 14, 28. That's consistent with all the passages that teach about Jesus. What Jehovah's Witnesses do is they say, if the father's greater then he's like ontologically or in his very essence of being, he's greater than Jesus for eternity. What scripture is talking about is this laying aside glory, 
father's greater than me taking my glory back. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's like a positional relational thing. So people really need to just study these verses on their own to really grasp the meaning of it before so that they can, they can be prepared on their own. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you gotta be ready to go. And, and when I say this, they're going to come back with another verse and I want to be ready for that. Uh, my, my video on the Trinity talks about this some too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do a whole video on how to share um, Christ with a Jehovah witness. So um, Angela wrote to wrap this up at the end, can you give us like five bullet points to remember when you encounter someone uh, that's a Jehovah, like what, what should you focus on? Yeah. Um, well, the first bullet point is prepare before they show up. Okay. Like you guys, you have homework to do right now. You, you pick a verse, a passage, a topic and go at it. Look it up in the new world translation, go on websites, look, look gather and figure out your argumentation. So prepare. This means you need to know what you're going to say, what they're going to say, what you're going to say in response, what they're going to say in response and what you're going to say to that. Like you have to know all that. And how do you learn that? Sometimes just by trying it out and seeing what they say, you know, and how it goes. So I'd say prepare ahead of time uh, to stick to just one topic. Don't talk about everything. Don't talk about every scripture. Stick to one issue. Chase it down, right? And you're well-prepared and you chase it down. Three would be have incredible compassion. It's not argumentative. It's invitational, right? Invitational. Uh, have an awareness of where they're at and where you're trying to bring them to and realize that and maybe this is the last point is that you just need to put a crack in the dam. You okay. don't necessarily need to convert a person at your door. You need to put a crack in the dam because all this stuff, everything is just built on them trusting the watchtower and the governing body. And if they can just begin to think outside that box, just begin to distrust that group, they will start to see all kinds of things that you don't even know to tell them about. Okay. Uh, Tricia said something, and this is just hopefully to encourage people out there that have Jehovah Witness, maybe uh, friends or relatives. And Tricia said this, thank you for this. I am an ex-Jehovah Witness. I was a witness for almost 40 years. Now I've been a Christian for a year. Mike's teaching have helped me, has helped me a lot. I pray for witnesses. Maybe one day I can help. So I think that's just an encouraging, encouraging uh, to say thank you to you. So um, yeah, we have a million other questions, which of course we are not going to get to, which is super sad. But uh, I would just say go on to BibleThinker.org. Uh, Mike's got a bunch of really, really um, awesome stuff there. And he's got a lot of stuff on Jehovah Witnesses. And then Friday, we're going to talk about Mormonism. So now where you live, Mike, you have a lot of Jehovah Witnesses. Where we live, filled with Mormons. So it'll be a good conversation on, on Friday because we got to know what what you know, how to respond to these people. So um, thank you for this. We're super excited that you got to do this. Uh, Will you pray for everybody really quick before we leave? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we just thank you for the truth of Christ revealed to us in the person of Jesus and in the word of God. We pray, Lord, that you'd enable us, empower us, and help us learn how to be better examples and better witnesses of the truth of Christ. We pray, Lord, for our our Jehovah's Witnesses in our community and around the world, that more and more their eyes would be opened. We pray that more people in the governing body would repent and recant of all of the apostasy and the deceit that has gone on with that group. Lord, we pray that you continue to pull the wall off of the Jehovah's Witnesses' eyes to see that they can't trust the governing body. But we also pray that you would lead them to the truth of Jesus and not just a rejection of one cult. Lord, empower us to be witnesses. Show us that we want to go deep in our knowledge of Christ so that we can take others deep into the knowledge of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us more opportunities, even especially now with COVID-19, all this kind of stuff. We just pray for more chances and opportunities to witness either online, in person, in any way we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen.